Well, we come now to our study, Introduction to Systematic Theology. And we've been looking at the various aspects of Christ's atoning work. And we've been doing this to consider the nature of Christ's work before moving on to the question, for whom was this work accomplished? We looked at expiation, propitiation. Last week we looked at reconciliation. Well, today we're going to consider the aspect of redemption. Now there's a word you don't hear very often, except maybe in church circles. Maybe the closest thing you hear is the word redeem, like when you're at Chick-fil-A wanting to redeem your reward points. And that word certainly has that idea, that is to make good on a promise or an obligation. Prior to that, the word redeem was used to convey the idea of being delivered from sin and death. And so generally speaking, redemption conveys the idea of deliverance. And of course, the Bible certainly speaks of Christ delivering people. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so speaking of Christ's atoning work as deliverance is all well and good and proper. And that's generally accepted by those who profess the faith. However, there's something more to this word that some people will not acknowledge. If you trace the roots of the word redeem or redemption back to the Latin, you'll find that it literally means to buy back, to pay a price, to pay a ransom specifically. And so to redeem someone is to secure the release of someone by the payment of a price. If you look up the word redemptioner, word I've never heard before until I did the study, but the original Webster's Dictionary has, a, has an entry for that. A redemptioner is basically describing an indentured servant. That is someone who redeems himself or purchases his release from debt or obligation to the master of a ship by his services. Or one whose services are sold to pay the expenses of his passage to America. It is this emphasis on a ransom, a price that is paid in order to deliver that has been lost by many people, and I think some intentionally. In fact, some cannot have this idea of ransom in their theory of atonement because it would conflict with their notions of free will. As Raymond points out in his systematic, Armenian scholars construe the redemptive work of the Lord of glory purely in terms of deliverance by power apart from Christ. This is an error of tragic proportions. R.W. Lyon, an Armenian theologian who wants nothing to do with a real penal substitutionary atonement, commits precisely this error when he writes, quote, when the ideas of ransom are linked to the saving activity of God, the idea of price is not present. In his own day, B.B. Warfield wrote quite a bit on this, wrote a very technical piece on this word group in Greek, Lytro and argues that it has always retained this native sense of ransoming as a mode of deliverance throughout the whole history of profane Greek literature, the Septuagint, the New Testament, and early church fathers. Well, it's one thing to argue about the roots of a Latin word, like redemption, or it's parallel in Greek, 
It's another thing to demonstrate whether or not the Bible is actually conveying this idea in our deliverance. And we'll turn to that in a minute. But before we do, I want to ask the question, which I ask a lot is, does it even matter? And if so, why? Why is this idea of ransom so important? Is it important? Well, as I have already alluded to, there's a reason why an Arminian theologian wants to strip the work of redemption from any notion of a purchase price. Because a purchase implies that Christ actually redeemed or purchased a people in his work of the cross. Just as we saw with expiation and propitiation and reconciliation, we'll see that our redemption is an accomplished action that takes place on the cross. It is never presented in Scripture in terms of a potential work. If you remember last Lord's Day, we talked about the aorist tense that was used with respect to reconciliation. Here again, Raymond points out that in every instance, the aorist tense is employed to describe his redemptive work at the cross. In short, the passages affirm that when Jesus died, his death actually redeemed. It actually procured or purchased everything essential to the deliverance of those for whom he died. You see this, for example, in the verb to give, as found in Matthew 20, 28. There, our Lord says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see this in the verb redeemed or ransomed. For example, in 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In Hebrews 9.12 states that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then he goes on in verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.6 that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And in Titus 2.14 Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then you have the verbs bought or purchased as seen in the following text. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And in 1 Corinthians 7.23, You were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. John in Revelation, twice in Revelation, in chapter 5, he says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then in chapter 14, we see the 144,000 it says they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth, who have been purchased. Then Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. All of these verbs, to give, to redeem, entered once for all, to purchase, they are all expressed in terms of a completed action to convey the idea that Christ's death actually redeemed. It did not potentially redeem, but it actually purchased not only the specific people whom God is going to redeem, but purchased everything these people would need in order to be redeemed. We referenced the verb to give in Matthew 20, 28. Let's look at that verse again and make some more observations. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Greek here that's translated as a ransom for many is latron anti-polon. And I just point that out because if you remember last Lord's Day, we talked about this preposition anti. It means in the stead of or in the place of. An antichrist is someone who's acting in the stead of Christ and in place of Christ. Here, Christ is clearly speaking of his death as a sacrificial death that is offered up as a ransom in the place of others. And so this ransom is substitutionary in its nature. Uh, we reference 1 Peter 1 to highlight the verb ransom, but notice the contrast Peter makes with the ransom of Christ to other things. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here, Christ's blood is contrasted with silver and gold, therefore supporting the idea of a payment that's rendered for our forgiveness. Again, we referenced John in Revelation 5, where he tells us that Christ purchased people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And in Revelation 14, where the 144,000 were the only ones who could learn this new song, a group redeemed from the earth. Well, in both places, John is using a Greek word group here, which was commercial terminology of the marketplace. And he's doing this in order to teach the same concept, that redemptive deliverance requires a payment price. Now, as I was thinking about all these things, I know anal analogies are imperfect, but I came up with one to kind of get you to think about this aspect of a ransom price and why it's so important and why I think some people try to suppress it. You know, last year, or not last year, but at my last job when I was delivering uh, beer, you know, I used to go down to Miami every week for two days, spend the night. And my first day would be like, you know, 15 to 20 hours, I'd spend the night and then work Friday. But one Thursday night, I was, there was some big music festival. I mean, there was just thousands of people all over the place. It was like 9 o'clock at night. I'm, I've been working for like 16 or 18 hours. I'm tired. I got one stop left. It's, it's a bar I've never been to. So I'm in this big old huge truck. People all around me. I'm driving. It's dark. I think it was even raining a little bit. I'm trying to find this place. I go through this intersection, all of a sudden, I just see a whole group of cars just come out of nowhere, like, to the side of me. It's like, what did I just do? I think I just ran a red light. <laughs> I com completely missed the red light. It was in between two overpasses because I was so busy looking for things. So when I got back to the warehouse on Friday, I told my boss, 
we may be getting a ticket in the mail, just take it out of my paycheck. And say, well, you don't have to worry about it because it's your first one, we'll pay for the ticket. I'm like, great. So that was $150 or whatever more that I didn't have to worry about. Now imagine if my boss had come to me a few weeks later with the ticket in his hand and said, here you go, Jason, pay for it. I'd be like, what are you doing? I thought, I thought you guys were going to pay for it. Didn't you pay for it already? And imagine my confusion that the boss had went on to say, well, yeah, we, we paid it, but you need to pay it too. And that doesn't make any sense. Something's, something's wrong here. Why am I paying for something that you said you already paid for? Is my boss lying to me? Did he not pay it? Did he only pay for some of it? Does my boss even understand what the word pay means? <laughs> Something's not computing here. No one would expect to have to pay for something when they were told that it was going to be, be, paid, be paid on their behalf by someone else. Well, let's carry this over. We know from Scripture that there's going to be people in the end who end up in hell for eternity, paying the price for their rebellion and sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But if Christ is said to not only purchase a people, but purchase everything necessary for their salvation, how can those same people end up in hell paying for something that was already paid for? Is God lying to us about what he did? Did Christ not pay it? Did he only pay for part of it? Well, the lazy and wrong answer is to say, well, we just got a paradox here. It's just, you can't resolve it. Just got to live with it. Or you can supposedly resolve the problem by removing this aspect of ransom out altogether. But beloved, understand this, this contradiction that's created is not created because of Scripture. It arises because of the false premise that is snuck into the equation that has no biblical warrant. That false a premise being that Christ paid the price for every single person without exception. Well, we don't want to go there because that'd make us mean old Calvinists. Well, call it whatever you want. I don't care. The force of the biblical language here is clear and undeniable. So much so that Raymond writes, quote, Christ's cross work is seen in the New Testament material as a redemptive act. And in every instance, Either in the immediate or near context, the ransom price he paid, his, his blood or death, which is the language that's used, which is what made his work redemptive in nature, is indicated. And it is only theological perversity that leads men to deny this and to insist rather that redemption and ransom simply speak of deliverance through power. Unquote. So let's be clear here. We're not denying that Christ delivers people through power. But that deliverance is not restricted solely to power. Our deliverance comes because Christ paid a ransom for it. He, in the words of Acts 20, 28, purchased the church through his own blood. Armenians and others will portray redemption solely in terms of deliverance by power apart from Christ to escape the force of this idea that Christ actually redeemed. He actually purchased a people in his work on the cross. And thus Murray writes, redemption therefore in our Lord's view consisted in substitutionary blood shedding 
or if you want to say it another way, bloodshedding in the room instead of many, with the end in view of thereby purchasing to himself the many on whose behalf he gave his life as a ransom, unquote. So you see, it's implied in the language. It's even explicitly stated in Scripture that Christ did this for the elect and the elect only, which we will look at in following lessons. Well, I want to briefly close this lesson then by looking at what Christ delivered us from. Christ's death as a ransom was paid to God whose holiness and justice have been offended by man's transgression of his law. This is the ransom's Godward reference, as Raymond puts it. But Raymond also notes that unlike propitiation and reconciliation, which need to be given solely a Godward reference, there is reason to view Christ's death as a redemptive act also as having a manward reference. Why does he say this? Because ransom and redemption presuppose our bondage. Murray wrote it this way. Ransom presupposes some kind of bondage or captivity, and redemption therefore implies that from which the ransom secures us. Just as sacrifice is directed to the need created by our guilt, propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God, and reconciliation to the need arising from our alienation from God, so redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sin has consigned us, unquote. And so what specifically then did Christ's death procure for the elect? Well, there are two main categories that we can think of this in. Law and sin. First, let's briefly consider the law. And right off the bat, we need to be very clear and important here. Scripture does not teach us that we are redeemed from the law itself. Many people say that. But that's absurd. We to believe that Christ died for us so that we're no longer obligated to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, to love our neighbors ourselves, which is the summary of the law. Christ is redeeming us from that. It makes no sense. But rather, when the scriptures talk about us being redeemed from the law, it's very nuanced. You've got to be very careful to catch those nuances. What we are redeemed from is not the law itself, but first from the curse of the law. Paul writes in Galatians 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the curse of the law is its penal sanctions against the lawbreaker, its penalties. And this is the curse or wrath of God that rests upon everyone who does not keep the law of God perfectly. And it is from this curse that Christ purchases his people and that he became a curse for them. Christ bore the full intensity and payment of that curse on the cross. Secondly, Christ delivered his people from any further need for the, and here's a big word, the pedagogical bondage that we see in the ceremonialism of the Old Testament. What do we mean by that? Well, in the words of our confession, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, a young 
immature church. These ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. And we see this, for example, Paul writing in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then thirdly, Christ has redeemed us from the law as a covenant of works, and that he has fulfilled all the demands of the law for us. Christ kept the law perfectly, and his obedience is the righteousness that is credited to us in our justification. Paul writes, <laughs> Paul writes there in Romans 5 that through the one man came disobedience, so through the one man comes uh, righteousness through obedience. And so we see that we are freed from the curse of the law, the ceremonialism of the Old Testament, which, which served to teach a young church about Christ and his work and from the law as the covenant of works. And then lastly, the other category of bondage from which Christ redeems us is sin. And under this, there are two aspects of sin that are the focus of this work of redemption. There's the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And the two effects that flow from this work of redemption are justification and forgiveness of sin to address our guilt and then deliverance from the enslaving power of sin. That redemption from the guilt of sin and the effect of justification can be seen in the following passages. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And in Romans 3, he says, And we are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then we see redemption in terms of freeing us from the enslaving power of sin. We see this in Titus 2.14. Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And of course, there's the entire chapter of Romans 6, which we will not read, but it starts with this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? And this forms the foundation for definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification, which I will leave for Pastor JP to discuss in the second half of this series. Well, as usual, there's much more that can be said, but I'm out of time. Again, I, want you, I, I just want to encourage you, again, to reflect on these various aspects of Christ's atoning work. I'm simply introducing them to you for you to run with it and study further to deepen your understanding of the nature of Christ's atonement. For what purpose? To see what it is that he actually accomplished in his work. Again, we are not talking about a potential salvation. I'm just going to do this and hope it worked. No, this is something he actually completed he actually did it. He accomplished this for a specific people whom he ransomed, whom he purchased. 
if you really get that figured out, like I've said before, when we get in this question of for whom did he do this for, it should be fairly obvious. You know, I, some people say limited atonement is one of the more tougher points of the so-called five points of count. To me, it was the easiest, personally. Once you understood the nature of our depravity, you understood the nature of Christ's work, it just logically follows. And I hope that's something you will see as we go on. 